Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg Global Headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Women make 80% of all healthcare decisions for themselves and their families. But our current healthcare system is incredibly inconvenient, and there are serious gaps in women's care. This month's guest is on a mission to change that. Hi, I'm Scarlett Fu with Bloomberg News, and in this episode, we sit down with Kate Ryder, founder and CEO of Maven, to discuss the unicorn startup's efforts to create a more equitable care model for women and families by providing virtual access to a network of more than 2,000 healthcare providers, including doctors, caretakers, and specialists. Kate knows how to tell a good story about her company. She's a former journalist reporting from New York, Singapore, and London. And she also knows how to get funding because she's a former early stage investor where she focused on investments in digital health and education. Kate, thanks so much for joining us in person, no less. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So exciting. Um, Obviously a lot to get to, but one thing I want to start off with is a lot of our Cornell Tech speakers always knew they wanted to be entrepreneurs uh, from a very young age, whether it's because of some family influence or just the instinct to want to build something of their own. Were you one of these self-directed souls? You know, I was not. Uh, I was. That, that's I, comfort to me. <laughs> I grew up surrounded by entrepreneurs. So my dad is an entrepreneur, and he is one of my biggest mentors. But I said early on I wanted to be a journalist. So um, I think I was telling all of my college classmates I was going to be the female Hemingway. I moved to Spain right after college, and entrepreneurship really kind of hit after that. I tried to start uh, my first business off the back of a story. And I think what kind of propelled me into it was that I had so much support from entrepreneurs in the family, but it was certainly not what I was talking about when I was 18. Okay, so let's go on your journalist path for a little bit here, because after college, you helped Hank Paulson, who is, of course, a former U.S. Treasury Secretary, write his memoir about his experience during the financial crisis. A lot of sleepless nights for Mr. Paulson. How did that opportunity come about? You know, th- these things are always just so, you know, some of the biggest opportunities happen by, by chance. So I was working at the New Yorker at the time, and it had, it was the financial crisis. So it was September 2008. Um, I was applying to be a print journalist, and there were no jobs. And so one editor at the Wall Street Journal had gotten my resume. His college friend called him, who was Hank Paulson's ghostwriter and said, hey, I need someone like right now, um, you know, we're going to start prepping for this memoir. And um, and so I got a call. I was asked to read a book on Bear Stearns and J.P. Morgan's, you know, J.P. Morgan takeover of Bear Stearns and then produce a book summary in like 24 hours. And I did it. And uh, and, and then I got the job. <laughs> How big was this team for Hank Paulson, just out of curiosity? Um, so it was the, the main ghostwriter, and then there was three of us. Okay, so you learned a lot about the financial crisis and Bear Stearns and J.P. Morgan really quickly in a yeah. short amount of time. Um, how would you compare what you understand about the financial crisis to the crisis that we are currently in, the global pandemic from COVID-19? Are there parallels that, that really strike you? You know, that's a really good question. I think that one of the biggest learnings out of the 2008 financial crisis was that it, it takes a crisis to actually propel action. And um, and I think as you've looked at kind of so much of what's going on right now with, with COVID, um, 
it, you know, it has felt sometimes that we, we haven't done things until kind of the last minute when we were forced to act. And so I think hopefully some of the learnings from 2008, some of the learnings now is, is kind of we'll, we'll be able to better foresee the next crises and better prepare so that we don't always have to wait for a crisis to propel action. Because, you know, with the, with the mortgage crisis at the time, there was a lot of signals, um, but it, it really was kind of when things um, blew up when the money market fund broke the buck when Lehman went under that really Congress started to kind of take it seriously yeah and, and then I think one of the big questions too and this was in um, the big short is like okay so now we've seen the pandemic what crisis is next you know we can we can we can talk about over drinks sometimes climate but, change yeah exactly <laughs> exactly so um, so I think it's it's you know how do we get ahead of how do we get ahead of this because the data is there's a lot of the data there Okay, now after college, um, you were a journalist. You reported for The New Yorker, as you mentioned, also The Economist. Talk a little bit about what parallels are between journalism and being an entrepreneur and starting your own company. You know, so much about entrepreneurship is, is, is figuring out the signal and the noise and then building a product for it. And so much of journalism is trying to find the story and mm -hmm. understand the story from a lot of disparate sources. So I would say kind of, you know, from day one, it was always about, okay, what's the right product? What's the right business strategy um, amidst a, an emerging market, which is digital health, you know, trying to really understand from a women's and family health perspective, what the core problem was. And then the, I think the really fun part of entrepreneurship is then you get to build the product. Whereas in journalism, once you kind of figure it out, you're writing, you're writing the story, you're telling the story. Um, but then I think when, you know, as we've scaled Maven, the storytelling has helped a ton because, mm -hmm. You know, you need great storytelling to close candidates on the hiring front. You need great storytelling in sales and marketing and, um, you know, for retention, for building companies. And so that instinct for kind of what's the what's the simple story and, and then how to kind of make a decision to, to move forward about what's the story coming up mm -hmm. um, has, has been has been really helpful. And of course, as you mentioned, one of the stories that you covered inspired an idea to start a business. <laughs> what was that business and, and what happened to it? So this was back in Singapore, um, I think it was 2010, and... Post-financial crisis. Post-financial crisis, had finished with Hank Paulson, was writing for The Economist and uh, Fortune, Wall Street Journal at the time. So I was kind of in Southeast Asia covering a lot of business stories. And um, I covered a story about the online travel market um, out of China. There's actually this American guy, Fritz Demopoulos, who started the biggest online travel site called Kachunar in, in China. And so I was covering that story, and it was just this story also of, you know, of, of just tremendous growth um, as the as the Chinese market was coming online, and as all these hotels are being developed around Asia, there was just such an opportunity to kind of match their travel habits to a lot of these hotels. So I still think it's a great idea. No, I don't think anyone's actually launched it, but um, but anyway, so two friends and, and myself decided, okay, what if we take the a U.S. kind of model um, of, of a luxury travel site. We adapt it to the Asian market. We launch it. Um, my two friends were based in Hong Kong. They started, you know, like seeding the idea with some of their investor friends, and and things started actually moving. Um, Wait, did you quit your job, or you were still doing your day job? I was still a, a journalist at the time, okay. but like I was, I was close to quitting my job, and then. And then my two friends in Hong Kong were like, actually, we want to be screenwriters. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I went on to write amazing movies. So it was like, it was hilarious. But, but it was kind of the first taste for me of like, wow, entrepreneurship feels really good. I love kind of collaborating with people. I love building. And, um, and then my dad, who is the entrepreneur in the family, who was visiting me at the time, 
And I was like, oh, I think I'm starting this business. And, and he was like, you know, you should probably go learn a little bit more on someone else's dime <laughs> before you launch into your venture. But I'm totally supportive when you do. So during that time when you were involved in this business that almost got off the ground, did, did you learn any big lessons? I mean, it sounds like you didn't have the time to make mistakes just yet because it got somewhere, but it didn't actually really take off, right? Yeah, exactly. I think the lesson was just that entrepreneurship is doing. Like in the very early days, you just have to do. There's you know, this whole concept of, I'm gonna really kind of build a business plan and a strategy and, and then I'm gonna plot it all out. Like actually a startup is way more iterative than that. And you just have to have this, 80-20 mindset of kind of constantly testing and iterating. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was the big learning is we were just constantly testing and iterating and there was no just grand business plan because you would get market intelligence or you would get some piece of information and then you would want to test against something else. And so really that those early phases of product market fit, mm-hmm. um, were, were, that was the kind of the big learning. It was this test and iterate mentality. You, made, you mentioned 80-20, 80 is testing, 20 is... Oh, like, eight, you know, get a, a project to uh-huh. 80% good. Okay. Um, and so, you know, don't spend the extra months getting it to 100% to get the A on the, on the paper. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, moving fast is more important. Than okay, that. got it, got it. Um, so your dad said maybe you should learn how to make some mistakes on someone else's dime. Yeah. Is that what led you to venture capital? Exactly. <laughs> how did you get that job though? Because it's rare that someone who's a former journalist goes into that business, right? Usually you come out of, I don't know, uh, a consulting background or a business school. Yeah, you know, so we had just moved to London after Singapore um, and it was the, the, the first kind of Eurozone crisis. Mm. So it was, it was pretty hard. The job market was also like very tight at that time. And so I was just networking with as many people as possible. And I was, Hank Paulson actually was my reference. So good reference. <laughs> it was a good reference. I was, I was interviewing at a lot of banks and financial institutions. And finally, I met this venture capitalist who had, he started his career as a journalist. He had a soft spot for journalists. Ah. And he goes, you know what? And it was another trial by fire. He's like, I'll give you an internship. If you can, if you can prove to me in, in a few months that you can really get this job, then, um, then you got the job. So similar to the Hank Paulson memoirs, I mean, it was uh, trial, trial by fire, but it, it did end well. Did you have to read a book and summarize it within a day? Uh, actually, more like P&Ls. <laughs> so, and, and it was. I mean, it was such a steep learning curve in the mm-hmm. early days of, of that venture capital job. But then... You know, there's a certain amount of pattern recognition that comes, mm-hmm. and it started. Things started to feel good within a year, where I kind of knew what was what, and um, and then I ended up staying there an extra year, uh, learning a ton, and then starting Maven. So, what do you think is the single most important lesson that you took from those two years in venture capital about what to look for investors, as you knew yourself that later on you would be the one looking for money? So, the, I think the most important takeaway from kind of sitting on the other side of the table was I I knew how the game worked. I understood how when an entrepreneur comes in to pitch a partnership, I I saw some of the partner debates at the venture capital fund I was working at. I I saw like what metrics they were really kind of focused on, you know, as they talked about entrepreneurship traits and teams. So so that was incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, the fundraising process is something that I didn't know and, mm-hmm. and I learned as an entrepreneur, but, but I, I knew what the dynamics were. And so I think it was a little bit less intimidating when I was going out to raise my own money. I think the other thing that was just amazing about those two years is all of the entrepreneurs I met. So 
um, a lot of them became investors in Maven or they're still friends today. And they, you know, so much is you're, you're kind of paving your own path as an entrepreneur. And as an ex-journalist, my instincts always is like getting kind of a, a collection of opinions and inputs. So mm -hmm. kind of my sources, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, when I make decisions or when I when I'm kind of building a strategy for something. And so that was so helpful to just understand what was normal and what wasn't, how, how I should think about fundraising, what stories were of entrepreneurs getting products off the ground. You know, everyone, no path is linear. And yeah. I was always like very helpful to know. So it sounds like that entrepreneur community is very collaborative and not really that competitive. Um, with each other, I mean. I think so. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm pretty competitive <laughs> with our competitors. But it is such a unique experience. And I think... As you as you scale further and further, it does get lonelier as you grow kind of these bigger businesses. And so and the group becomes smaller of the entrepreneurs that have done it. And so I'm, for instance, going um, I'm really excited. I'm going to London tomorrow and I'm going to this with with some of my old uh, uh, venture capital friends from the time and entrepreneur friends. And I'm going to this small conference and it's just kind of with later stage entrepreneurs. And I'm, I'm going to probably learn so much and, and we're probably all going to be grappling with a lot of similar business issues. Whereas mm -hmm. the issues I was grappling with at the Series A, mm. surrounding myself with kind of entrepreneurs who are during, during the Series A was, was tremendously helpful. Got it, got it. That's really interesting how the funnel narrows quite a bit as the farther along you go. You've often talked about pitching Maven to male VCs. Did you have a sense, I mean, we all know the numbers out there, they're not good for women about um, the, the gender funding gaps, but how much of that did you actually see when you were in venture capital? Or is it something that you really only saw once you yourself were asking for money? Oh, I saw it. I, I think, um, I mean, the fund that I worked at, there, there were no female partners, right? And so- How I, many people were in this fund? Um, I think there was maybe 12 to 15 partners. Okay. Um, so, and, and then there was associates and assistants and all of that. So you, there were women in the office, but um, there wasn't that kind of, you know, single female partner to look up to. Um, and then when I was also pitching, there was also, you know, it was very clear. There was a, a dearth of, of female partners when I went to the other side of the table. So, I, yes, that was very frustrating, I think, because the part of the game is the venture capital is only going to take a few bets a year because, quite frankly, that's all the time they have. It's not even that it's sexism if they're choosing, you know, the self-driving car technology versus the women's and family health business. It's it's truly about interest. Like I I would probably choose a women's and family health business over a self-driving car technology. And so I think when you just don't have those diverse perspectives in the room, that's really where uh, it, it hurt. But mm -hmm. um, and it, you know it hurt our conversion rate and it hurt our, our pipeline. But now it, it's great. Like. All raise is a community of, of female venture capitalists and female investors that are all supporting each other to get more females in leadership. And our board, as we've talked about, is you know primarily female. And and I have amazing female mentors. And there's amazing female investors on the board, and that's so. So things are changing. They're not changing fast, but they're they're definitely different than they were in 2014 when I started. Why do you think that is? What's what's been the the impetus for that change since 2014? Well, talking about a good crisis, how we started the conversation, <laughs> I think um, I think a, a combination of things. Number one, the data is just not good. And so when you continually hold up that data mm -hmm. um, and and so there's a transparency to to the numbers. Um, so people then, actively trying to fix it. Yes. And then you compare that with like 
you know, the Harvey Weinstein crisis, mm -hmm. the kind of the Me Too movement, mm -hmm. and you take that, then all of a sudden there is a little bit more pressure on the LPs who invest in the VC funds to kind of say, hey, like, I'm not going to invest in your next fund unless I see more diversity mm -hmm. at the partnership level. So um, I think that's been a positive. And so it's pretty rare these days to see a fund without a female partner. Like, I think everyone needs to check that box right now. Mm -hmm. um, and so I still knew a few funds like two years ago with no female partners, and almost all of them now have a female partner, so. Okay, well, I mean, it's good to have at least one, but we know we need more than <laughs> I mean, one because then you're the token female <laughs> whose voice is often drowned out by the boys, right? Right, exactly, I know. Now it's like measuring, like, when are there two or more? <laughs> all right, baby steps here. All right, let's talk about Maven. Um, you mentioned that as a former journalist, you know how to tell a good story, and that that storytelling really comes into play. What was your original story or narrative for Maven? So it, um, the original story was I had just turned 30 and one of my best friends had just had her first child. And she was also like in our group, one of like the first to have a, a child. Mm -hmm. and I think when that happens, and if you, if you talk to a lot of kind of late 20s, early 30s women who are just entering childbearing years, like talk about the stories, like the stories of like what actually happens when you like start a family to your body, to your mind, to your relationship, to kind of your job. Um, this is not something that you learn about in school. And then I, I would say, like, as someone in their early to mid-20s, it's not something you also probably want to be thinking a lot about. I was thinking about none of this when mm -hmm. I was, you know, in my 20s. Um, and then it hits you, and you just, it's like, you know, wow. Like, this is where um, so much happens that creates gender inequality. It's, it's where, like, it's one of the most vulnerable times that so many people go through. Um, you know, talk about DE&I, like, it's not always a woman, you know, growing a family. If, if one of my best friends who is, um, who's gay, like as he's thinking about growing his family, like there's no family planning options for him and, and where he works right now. And so all of that kind of hits you. And then you bring children into the world and you meet some of these children and they're beautiful and they're wonderful. And it's also one of the most joyful time of life. And so it, the big aha moment to me was why is, and, and knowing that I was gonna go through it and I now have three kids, why why was this time just so undersupported when mm -hmm. it was one of the most pivotal healthcare moments full of joy and and so much here is if you can get women's and family health right you can actually create better downstream kind of healthcare outcomes mm -hmm. across all of the rest of society and healthcare and so it was just this this it, yeah it, it was just this huge opportunity to do something that also dramatically affected me so I could be the patient who who brought that perspective as well to what we were building and the mission and, and, and staying true to the mission always. That's a great story to, to start with. How do you think it's evolved since you began the firm? So when we started, I mean, just like no one talked about women's health, right? So mm -hmm. we started just as like, let's start kind of bringing postpartum and return to work into pregnancy. So. I mean, it was like completely crazy that like you, a woman has a baby and then like there was there was nothing else afterwards. So our model was you're, 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 you go away for a while and then you go back to work. Yeah, exactly. It. It's like magic. So, so our model was very much to leverage digital health. So leverage telemedicine. We have the largest telemedicine network in women's and family health because that was one of the first things we were doing. We were filling gaps in access to these specialized providers like breastfeeding, you know, mm. lactation consultants for breastfeeding support or mental health support or pediatric support. So, um, you know, bringing all of that together was, was product number one. And so it was, it was starting to evangelize, hey, the pregnancy model's broken, like let's mm -hmm. like expand it outwards. You know, one out of five women suffer from postpartum depression. 43% of new moms weren't going back to the workforce. So we really focused on that moment. Mm -hmm. Then in our first kind of 50 to 100 patients, 
um, you know, we got the infertility, we got miscarriage, we got, you know, men who were the primary caregiver. And so we just kind of started holistically saying, okay, fertility is next, adoption's next, surrogacy's next, mm-hmm. you know, parenting and pediatrics is next. We have a preconception product now that's attached to our fertility product. And so how do you build that con- continuity mm-hmm. between thinking about starting a family no matter who you are and no matter what you look like, mm-hmm. and then personally is that an experience all the way to kind of young parenthood? Okay, so that's a really wide range of services that you offer. How much is telehealth or virtual versus um, in-person visits and in-person consultations? So we're virtual first. So um, so the way we work is we have navigators, and the navigators are the ones that are connecting patients to the in-person care, so fertility clinics or OBs. Mm-hmm. And then our virtual providers are filling in the gaps when you, you either don't have that type of provider covered by a, your health plan, so it could be a genetic counselor mm-hmm. or a, a, you know, a, a return-to-work coach um, or breastfeeding, a lactation consultant. Before you go on, how much of that um, is not covered versus covered? I mean, would you say that like the breakdown's 20 covered, 80 uncovered, or 50-50? Well, it, it depends, right, on what kind of like health plan sure. your either employer or your kind of your insurer gives you. You know, you see some, some kind of coverage where it's very rich mm-hmm. and you might only pay a few hundred dollars out of pocket for like a $40,000 episode and that's and then you get a lot of these services covered so that's that could be you know a health plan at a big technology company but then you get other companies and it's like you know you might be paying $8,000 out of pocket yeah. and you get almost nothing covered except the core OB and then so it, it, it totally depends on coverage but I would say one of the things we're also solving for is convenience. And so sometimes, you know, you could say, oh, yeah, we have lactation consultants covered. And then you can't see someone for two months mm-hmm. and someone needs someone that evening. Right. So you're not only solving for, like, expanding coverage, but you're also solving for that on demand. Accessibility. Yeah. OK, gotcha, gotcha. So you were saying that um, you do connect people with the physical clinicians, but most it's, it's virtual first. Yep, virtual first. And what that also allows us to do is there's also, you know, 50% of rural um, communities in the U.S. don't have an OB. And so let's say there's, you know, we, ha- we have members in, the, in those communities. They may be seeing someone in person and we'll connect them and it could be a family physician. Mm-hmm. But, and then they'll able to actually, like, have all the specialty care maven. And then in a lot of cases, care that looks like them. So culturally kind of, you know, competent care where if you're black, if you really want to see a woman and the only person in your, in your town is a man who's a family physician, if you speak Spanish, you can actually also connect with those types of providers on Maven. Got it, got it. Who are your customers? I mean, could I sign up if I wanted to? And, and how much would it cost me as an individual who already has a health insurance plan through work? Yeah, so ideally your work would, would offer Maven for free. So we work with employers like Microsoft and... Um, I don't know all the ones I'm allowed to name, but that's one of them I'm allowed to name. <laughs> uh, so we, we, we work with a lot. We work with about five of the Fortune 25 and a, and a ton of kind of, you know, larger employers. Um, so either your employer gives you Maven for free and that's the fertility product or, or the maternity product, the parenting product. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can just download Maven from the App Store if you're just kind of, you know, you, you need a quick telemedicine console. Mm-hmm. We decided to leave that product in the market for consumers mm-hmm. because our core mission is access. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to always make sure that, um, you know, anyone can have the access at any time. So you could potentially use Maven if you just 
downloaded the app and, and booked with you know whatever provider you wanted to book with gotcha. right now. Okay, and then I would try to use my own insurance to see if they. Or you would just pay out of pocket. Okay, um, and that's cheaper often than a copay. So our mm. uh, the cost of an appointment out of pocket for a nurse practitioner who can write you a prescription is only eighteen dollars, um, and for a uh, a doctor it's thirty five. I like how this is patient first. Yes. Um, you have a network, I believe, of over 2,000 doctors, caretakers, service providers. Tell me a little bit about your providers. Are they affiliated with existing hospital groups or doctor practices? Do they work exclusively for you? Um, are they working full-time, part-time? Yep, so we have a hybrid model. Um, some of our providers work for us exclusively. Others kind of set hours as they see fit. So maybe like an hour a week, or it could be like you know five hours a week, and then they see patients as they come. Um, and so, you know, a lot, of, so what, one of the coolest things about our providers is 98% of them are women. Mm. Um, so there are a lot of moms themselves um, that are, you know, so a parent kind of counseling other parents, other moms. It's a really powerful combination. I've been a patient and on the recipient end of it. But, um, and this is something they bring up too as they're counseling the, the patient too, right? I yeah. Mean, oh, yeah. Like totally. Like, oh, when, I, when that happened to me or don't, mm. don't worry. I mean, the, the amount of compassion and empathy that they're bringing to these virtual visits, I think, is what really helps Maven's telemedicine stand apart. You know, I think telemedicine now is very, everyone understands what it is because of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's still people that it's more commodified than it should be. It's kind of like 1-800-DIAL-A-DOC. I think with Maven, the idea is like, no, 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 this person is, can be in your life. They always go on your care team in the app. And they're, they could be like your next door neighbor who's mm -hmm. a doctor, who's just there counseling you with compassion, humanity, um, uh, you know, in, in areas where you're not getting this care in mm -hmm. person. So it could be like, you know, pelvic floor rehab after mm -hmm. a tough childbirth. Mm. Um, a lot of women don't seek support for that. I didn't even know that was available. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so um, that, that's an example where they're some of our most passionate providers I because see. that's just such an um, underserved area in women's health. Same with um, re relationship coaches, mm -hmm. sleep coaches. Um, these are these are such important providers as you bring kids into the world and you know you're overslept or you, you're underslept parents and you know you, you've like had some conversation about in-laws and what they want for your baby and you know your your baby's not sleeping you're exhausted like this is that if you just have a few of these virtual consults which is so easy you can actually get a plan and your life back on track pretty quickly um, and so those are some of our really popular providers as well on the coaching side I mean this looks at women's health and family planning as a holistic mm -hmm challenge as opposed to as a, as a holistic um, care as opposed to you know you have the baby and everything else is kind of your problem you got to figure it out exactly. in Google if you yep. need to and maybe ask a friend and hopefully they have something to tell you which yep. is how most women kind of have muddled through all this yeah and and you know 30% of our users are men um, and so that's pretty amazing because it also can bring a, the dad into the picture mm -hmm. um, and you know we have all of these reports of you know, the mom goes to the prenatal appointment or the, you know, the fertility clinic to do all of the, the retrievals and like the dad doesn't go because he's working or whatever. But then they go have a, a group console on Maven at night to kind of go over what happened in person so he can participate in the process a little bit more. So that that's been super cool to see. Right. So that he's not separate from the process. Exactly. And like it begins like he's a, a stakeholder. Leader. Right. Absolutely. You initially focus on selling Maven to uh, individuals, uh, B2C first, before yep. then selling Maven as a B2B platform to employers. Explain your strategy and, and what, why you went in that order. So, yeah, I mean, I think with, with our product, like we're a consumer product. At the end of the day, um, we are only a good company as much as we in, engage 
consumers. They love our product. They're signing into our product. They're delighted by our product. You know, we have a, a ton of cl- uh, like a, a pretty strong clinical backbone. So if patients are engaged with our product and one of the product metrics on the clinical side is to kind of reduce C-section rates or, you know, look at worrisome symptoms for high-risk patients and fertility or, or pregnancy and then help them kind of navigate through that, maybe avoid a NICU um, stay, that's really, really critical to just having a, 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 a like a patients who love our product. So, so we are a consumer product always. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to start there because like the consumer market is brutal on on products. So we heard really early on like what our patients liked, our, our members, you know, what they didn't like, and so we were able to kind of hone that customer love on mm-hmm. the product first before we went to the employers. So then when we went to the employers, we said, listen this is what we've learned. This is what we see patients really needing. And now you can like, you know, sell this into your, you can give this to your employees and, you know, this is going to help them return to work. This is how they use the product. And um, you can retain talent and you can reduce your, you know, family planning related costs. And so it was a, it was not just a, here is why you should do it as a client mm-hmm. and like product be damned. It mm-hmm. was, this is a product that patients love mm-hmm. and, and this is how it's going to help you. Right. It's a proven concept yeah. and you will only get appreciation from your employees once you offer it because the, the ones who do use it already love it. Yeah, because it, it takes, it, the sales cycle's long. So if you just are beholden to B2B sales cycles, you're, you're actually lacking product data to get into your product and then kind of push your roadmap forward based uh-huh. on what the patient wants. Oh, interesting, interesting. So talk a little bit about the differences between the B2B and B2C markets and what Maven gains from each that's distinct. Yeah, so on the B2C side, I mean, that's just our telemedicine app that anyone can download. And, the, and again, the reason we have that in the market is because we actually have like a certain amount of people just finding it and using it. Mm-hmm. So we didn't want to take that access away. And sometimes those could be employees at companies that then start advocating for Maven as a benefit. Right. Um, they go to HR and say, you need to add this. Exactly. Or in some cases, it's been amazing. They've been HR themselves. So that's been great. Um, on the employer side, Employers are typically the, the biggest innovators of new digital health products because they have uh, their incentive is happy, healthy employees, and our incentive is happy, healthy patients. Mm-hmm. And so there's no misaligned incentives, mm-hmm. and you know there's a benefits war with a lot of different companies, and particularly when it comes to family planning, there's been a lack of diversity of options. You know, men have been left out of the equation, and so they're you know they're they're actively looking for things, and so it's so for employers, it's a way. For them to kind of say, okay, I'm going to offer this for free to our employees. I'm going to, you know, have more supported fertility, pregnancy experiences. I'm going to support all pathways to parenthood, adoption, surrogacy for our LGBTQ community. We're going to bring dads into the process, and and it's like a, it's a, it's a great like everyone wins, like mm-hmm. multiple bottom lines, mm-hmm. um, and that's great because I, I think that from a patient standpoint, people still kind of want their employers or their health plan to pay for their care. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, we are a healthcare product. So we, if, if you're just selling that on the open market, I think people kind of expect insurance to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So now what the employers have done is the employers have, have adopted Maven, they love Maven, and now they've gone to the insurers and they've said, hey, we have Maven, why don't you carve this in to mm-hmm. what you do? Because mm-hmm. it's going to be easier for me and I'm one of your biggest customers as an employer. Mm-hmm. And so then the insurers have come back to us to say, hey, we should think about a potential partnership. Mm-hmm. And then what that does is it unlocks not only all of these kind of, you know, other employers that they can now kind of uh, sell us into as, as, a, as a connected partner in their ecosystem, but then it unlocks more 
complex populations like the Medicaid of, of the world. And so, you know, one out of two births are, are on Medicaid plans, which is lower income. And so given that the health plans manage a lot of those populations, it, it allows us to start to then navigate there. You know, mm. we're recutting our product actually right now as we speak mm -hmm. um, to be able to support um, this, this part of the market. Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, cost is always going to be a huge consideration for employers who do sign on with you guys, who yeah. then go back to the insurance companies. How much pressure do you face on costs from your B2B customers? You know, not a ton. I mean, the medical budgets of these uh, employers are are crazy. <laughs> like, if you're a, a Fortune 100, like you're spending billions of dollars a mm -hmm. year on medical. So the Maven line item is like very minuscule. Ah. Um, I think also when you really look at the ROI analysis, when you when you get into the smaller customers um, where they, they might be more cost conscious. Um, the ROI is just there. I mean, it's like not only are we reducing costs, so so you know you're you're actually saving money with Maven, but all of the talent attraction and retention you can you can measure that from a productivity standpoint. Gotcha, gotcha. One thing that always strikes me, and obviously you have, are knee deep in healthcare, and you know how it works, is that you started Maven without a background in healthcare, which is. Um, a huge obstacle for a lot of people. I mean, healthcare is its own language, right? It's got its own rules. What kind of advantages do you think that provided you with? Well, yeah, the naivety was great. <laughs> <It'll>, <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. Yes, exactly. It allowed me just to keep going in those early days. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think it, just always having the North Star as the patient, so kind of the rest of the system be damned if we are, are always building for the patient. That is that is where so much of the industry is going anyway. Mm. That it's allowed us not to make those compromises, I think, and that's been to the benefit of Maven. Um, I think also just uh, not being so in entrenched allows just that, that simplicity of what we need to do. Like instead of, I mean, it's so complicated. Healthcare is so complicated. I'm still, it's like peeling back an onion. I'm still doing it. There's still many parts of it I don't totally Every day understand. you learn something new about the healthcare system. 100%, and I still can't really read my own medical bill. So, um, but, That's frightening that, yeah, that's, yeah, that you're in that situation. Frightening. I th yeah, so I think oh, like this is like a joke. A lot of healthcare execs will say they can't read their own medical bills. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, just, just the simplicity of we're building a product for the patient and then we'll figure out the, the business model around it and not make certain compromises to strip things away because of price or cost if it's not in the right interest of the patient mm -hmm. has, allowed, has allowed us to kind of maintain, to be true to that. So how do you hire for that then? Do you hire people who are from the healthcare world or do you hire people who are like you, who come in from the outside and can look at this through, through new eyes, fresh eyes? This is the constant challenge of building a digital health company is you, is you need both mm -hmm. um, and, and you ideally have that balance. And so I think sometimes we've swung you know, in both directions. And so I think it's just constantly making sure that you, you, know, you, you, are, you are hiring from both the healthcare industry, you're hiring from great high growth consumer technology companies who bring that kind of scaling mindset. Mm -hmm. And then you're building the right comm structures and, and, and culture that everybody's collaborating and bringing their best strengths um, to make Maven as successful as possible. When's the last time you heard from someone, um, no, we can't do that. That's not how it works in healthcare. Oh, every day. <laughs> <laughs> every day. And I think it's, you know, it's like, let's unpack that. Right. Tell me why it can't work. Like, oh, have we looked at it this way? Or like, oh, interesting. Well, you, you know, I think um, some people think it's like so complicated to implement. Like we can, impl we, we can implement in two weeks. You know, there's like when you have an agile, te you know, tech product, 
you can move fast. When you have agile teams, you can move fast, a lot faster than kind of some of the traditional healthcare. Speaking of moving fast, you mentioned putting together something in two weeks. During COVID, um, a state reached out to you to, to put together a package, and I think it was two weeks. Yes. What was it, and, and how did you do that? So right when COVID hit, one of the big things that happened is that OBG cl clinics kind of shut down because of PPE shortages mm -hmm. and fertility clinics shut down, pediatrician offices shut down. And so everyone was scrambling to get telemedicine up and running. Um, and so the state of Massachusetts came to us. They were, you know, one of the organizations and, and they were like, can you, you know, do maternity and pediatric telehealth like, like you know, soon the governor is going to be making an announcement. And we also had just shifted to remote work. And so we were learning how to work t as a team remotely. But I think it was just this awesome moment for Maven because everyone was like, yes, we can help. Like we can actually, you know, in those early days of COVID, you just felt so powerless. You're like, what is happening? Mm -hmm. And it was this great rally moment for the team where we all stood up and said, yes, we're doing it. And we had just certain teams who were just working around the clock to get it launched. Um, and then we were doing this with like employers, with certain organizations of like, how do we plug in to, um, you know, to plug some of these urgent gaps? Okay, so you learn how to move quickly, you learn how to do it remotely, and you got it done. Yeah. Um, when it comes to your finances, you recently announced a Series D funding, $110 million, and that leaves your company valued at a billion dollars, which makes you guys a unicorn. Um, what does the unicorn milestone mean for you, and, and what are you able to do as a result of, of being valued at $1 billion plus? Well, I would say that, I mean, it's it's tremendously humbling, right? And I think, you know, kudos to all of the hard work of our team over the last seven years, like both people who are are still at Maven or who have been at Maven in the past. I mean, it's it, this was not an easy, you know, an easy mountain to climb, particularly in the early days. But I think, um, so I think a few things. One, the amount of resumes and talent we're getting with a billion dollar valuation is, is awesome. And, mm. and so, you know, we need the best people to continue mm -hmm. to scale. And Are so, they in healthcare? Are they from other places? Both, everywhere, across the map. Like, you know, we can be in in partnership discussions with potential clients and then the, the the person on the other line will like send me an email on the side being like hey i'm interested in the jobs I'm like okay bring us in first and then let's talk um so so that's really cool i think though you know in the also in the past like it we were pushing a boulder uphill this this was a new category and so it just felt like we didn't ha like we were just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. And this is now kind of flipped a little bit. We're like now this market is ours to lose. And so as a result, um, it is just I think it's it's it forced everyone to kind of level up and up their game a bit because now there's stakes in a way that mm -hmm. I think you know when you're like every 12 months like you know surviving on funding and like kind of next milestones. It's it's you know we we can we, there's bigger bigger stakes and and the stakes are like what the 10 year vision that we have right. I mean, there's an entire um, opportunity. You know, women's and family health is wide open. This market is just opening right now. And, yeah. and so to be able to kind of marry the virtual to the bricks and mortar, to develop this kind of new care model that's totally seamless for the patient, I mean, that's, you know, it's not going to happen overnight, but we have the opportunity to really spearhead that. And that's super exciting. Yeah, you're in the right place at the right time right now. And a lot of big names are signing up as well. I mean, I was looking at your investors. Um, you've got blue chip VCs like Sequoia, Icon. But you also have a couple of people who would be on, I don't know, the cover of People magazine, <laughs> Oprah, um, Reese Witherspoon, Mindy Kaling, Natalie Portman. How important is it to you, or, or what's the value in having those kinds of big name individuals uh, supporting Maven and investing in Maven? 
Well, because we're a consumer product at the end of the day, I think um, it just, it it brings that kind of consumer appeal mm. to Maven mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, for people who are just hearing about us through their employer or their health plan, like, oh, Maven, like, if it's like, oh, Maven was that company Oprah invested in, I'm going to try it out. Like, that's great. And then, you know, and then our product can take over and they can be delighted by everything they see. But, you know, healthcare, it's, it's A, it's like not the sexiest of industries. And it's still hard for our marketing team to describe and for me to describe our product in one sentence, right? There's so many facets of it. And, and so to, to be able to have some of these bigger name investors is, is super helpful for that reason. Right. Where, where does the name Maven come from? So Maven is, means expert in Yiddish. And so the idea is that Maven is, we are one big platform, which is our, we're a Maven. We have all these individual Mavens working mm -hmm. on it. And then if we really want to kind of take it to the next level, we, then Do it. <laughs> we, are, we are helping the patient become a Maven themselves. Ah. <laughs> empowering you. Yes. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> I want to thank you so much. Uh, Kate Ryder, founder and CEO of Maven, the women's healthcare clinic and benefits platform. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or visit the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast homepage to sign up for the invites to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this event series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.